Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us today is a dear friend of mine, Mike Shalau. Is or was? He is. Oh, excellent. And he was, but also is. Would you say that's like his beers? I think at about an hour and 45 minutes into the interview, <laughs> you actually understand what the name is, was, <laughs> is all about. We just decided to take our time to get there, much like his beers, right? Absolutely. I think he's definitely interested in uh, slow maturation. I think that uh, that uh, Mike is also interested in Belgian-style blonde beers of a variety. His beers are phenomenal. Um, we had the distinct privilege of drinking things really like horizontally. We drank right. beers uh, conditioned in different bottles, the same beer in different uh, bottles. <laughs> we drank the same beer with different yeast conditions. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was fun. And we also dive into a little bit about what it means to be authentic in the current climate of beer and in the world as a whole. Before we jump in, thanks for listening to us on Heavy Hops. We definitely encourage you to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify or like there's a million platforms you We're can like listen to everywhere. us on by now. So Yeah, we you, you don't have to have a specific platform at this point. We are everywhere. Yeah, if you actually go to scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops, you can listen to it embedded on the website if you like web infrastructure point like point zero one. <laughs> it's like taking you back ten years. It's it's refreshing. But <laughs> but if you live in the future, uh, we're on all these platforms. Definitely listen to us, subscribe to us. Also, it really helps other people find us if you rate and review. So please do that and use your social media of choice, whatever the fuck that is, to share with people. You know, you can, I think there's one more way people could share too. Printing transcriptions of our shows Dude. and sharing them via mail with That's others. That's what I was going to recommend. We are in the mail age. You Not put, like M-A-L-E. No, M-A-I-L. Feed the USPS. Yeah. They need you right Included now. Included in your vote because you should be voting <laughs> by mail or vote or bring it with you and put it in the ballot. That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> no, don't do that. We don't want to be involved in tampering, but you <laughs> no, can no, share no. it with other people. Definitely share us with other people and you can find us on Instagram at Heavy Hops and you can find me at Sam Kange, that's C-A-N-G-E and you can find Alexi at... Who the fuck is Alexi on Instagram? Thank you and enjoy the episode. Excellent pouring skills. A lot of milk in that one. I got yeah. three good ones out of it. Woo! I got another bottle over here if you oh, it's are right. offended by that. No, I'm not. All right, so here's the first one. All right. That's right. Cool. Right. We will pass that on down. This is good content. There we go. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And no, where are you going now? What is happening? I wasn't listening to the past. No, it's, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do a roundabout kind of situation. So. All right. We, we do do this once a week. So what episode is this? So we're going 15, 15, 16, 15 I think. I think it's 16, actually. Uh, yeah. No. No. 15. No. 15. Take a public poll. 15. Because 13, <laughs> 13 is coming out. Uh, yeah, tomorrow. 13 is coming out or was coming out. Um, is, was. It is, was coming uh, out. It is, ah! was. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> Everyone from Gothenburg is going to be happy with that yeah. pun. Um, 
yeah, so we're and then Zach and now uh, now Mike. So, uh huh. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank these, you for having me. Yeah, these beers already look tasty as hell. That, well, that's where it ends. That is that is milky. <laughs> the, the, the milk opor. I'll I'll avoid that one. It'll settle out. My, in fact, my dairy allergy. (laughs) (laughs) Is there lactose in this? Yeah, these are all lactose saisons. Well, that's the that's new rustic, right? Yeah, neo rustic. That's what we're going for. Neo rustic. Okay. Uh, So should I organize these? First one, second one. Or are we just? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You can drink them back and forth. It's. uh, It's all, like, it's all a gimmick. Mix them right? together. Oh, oh, <laughs> there's got no it. real difference. Uh, no, I was reading an article that was actually on Good Beer Hunting, which I don't read very often. I've got strong opinions about that place, but there was about like postmodernism in beer and like how all beer is a simulacra. And I was like, I'm like, I'm pretty pretentious, and this is even out there for me. Mm-hmm. But it was actually a pretty insightful article in relating it to like how everything's a copy of a copy of a copy that's just getting degraded, essentially. <laughs> And that's how you end up with like what's the most postmodern thing is just to like put finished food products in your other finished food products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, that's even the case with um, the like formulaic double dry hopping, where a brewery will have three different beers, and then they're all they will then out of that come with uh, ten different beers, and that's just different dry hopping, right? Well, that's like, there's good and bad in that, right? You want to like figure out how to brew a certain style and a certain recipe, and you it's better that you get good at that than just try to scattershot everything. Mm-hmm. But then if they're all so similar, like I think a lot of people are deluding themselves that a lot of these hops are distinctly different. Like I, They're somewhat different, but when you use them at crazy rates and use them all together in slightly different ratios, like you end up with mostly the same beer over and over again, which mm-hmm. is great if you like that style of beer. Like Just give them more. Mm-hmm. And that's what people are getting is right. just even more skews, right? Mm-hmm. More skews always, right? Yeah, because it's it's still it's still a, <laughs> a battle for shelf space, <laughs> right. space at, at your uh, football sized minis, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Mike, tell us a little bit about how you found your way uh, into beer. When we first met, I think you were working at West Lakeview Liquors, right? That's right. Was yeah. that your first I, we, job in beverage? We might. Yeah, that was my first job in beverage. So I, I went to I came to Chicago to go to DePaul when I was like eighteen, um, and then when I was a senior, they stopped having classes on Fridays for some reason. Like I don't know exactly what the deal was, but uh, oh, lab day, you mean? Yeah, that was where they put all the labs. <laughs> I, I think right. that was like the last year I was at DePaul. They started doing that. Yeah, well, well as a uh, as a music student, you don't do a lot of lab work. <laughs> so it was just like, I don't have anything to do on Fridays. So a friend and I would go up to Half Acre every Friday. Um, and honestly, the first time I went there, I had Balmay and said, if anyone says they like this, they're lying. Uh, <laughs> but I just kept going back because it was like interesting. It was something was intriguing about it. Um, and I kept going back and, and trying more stuff. And I had a crush on the girl who worked there at the time. And... Um, uh, she actually got me the job. We ended up dating for a couple of years, and she got me the job at Westlake View Liquors, which is like a OG like craft beer store in Chicago. Um, before you could go into any binnies and get like an actually decent selection of beer from around the world, instead of just like all of the beers that come in plastic bottles from the Baltics. <laughs> um, 
And so I started working there um, when like Shelton Brothers was really cool. They were like the, the peak of like what great tasting beer was. Local beer really wasn't a thing yet. I think there's only one brewery in the city limits of Chicago. Uh, no, there are three breweries inside in the city limits of Chicago, which makes me sound really old, but that was just like, it wasn't that long ago. That was like 2012 probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but the two guys who founded Pipeworks start, met working there. Not when I was there, but I would always work the day shift and they would deliver um, and I got to know them. And uh, when that girl broke up with me, I had a lot of free time. So I started volunteering at Pipeworks. <laughs> Um, and I went from like unpaid intern to uh, running all daily operations and the barrel aging program and just doing various things. It was kind of like the Wild West there. Like early on, it, it was BJ Garrett and Scott and then like any number of like unpaid interns running around and whoever was the most naive to think they could do the thing that they wanted to do, like <laughs> they could clean the tank or something was the one who just stepped in and did it. So I happen to be that person more often than not. Um, yeah, and so I started that barrel program. I ran the daily operations, sourced all the raw ingredients, uh, kind of helped with the move to the newer spot. Um, then, you know, at a certain point, it was just, I'd been doing that for, you know, six or seven years, and I had kind of come to the, like, plateau of what I wanted to do there and what I thought was, like, available for me to do. Um, and it, it, w- it was really grating on me that I had this job that most people would say was like, this is a dream job. Like people would literally say that to me when I was at festivals or events, like so you run the barrel aging program, you kind of do whatever you want. And I hated it. <laughs> like I, I had grown to really hate it. Cause if you do something like that over and over, over again, people say love what you do and you never work a day in your life, but you also will, might end up hating the thing that you love in a sense, an interesting mm-hmm. way. Um, I hated barrel aged beer and they had like, they have 500 barrels of, stout and barley wine aging and then I'm looking at it one day and I'm like man I don't even like this anymore and I gotta taste all of these at least three times if not more so I have to taste like 1500 ounces of beer probably in the next two years minimum just for for work and it's like 13 to 15 percent alcohol and I was like I can't do it anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like there were people that really were would have been really good at it and people that wanted to do things there that like I had kind of lost motivation to do and I was kind of falling out of love with beer. And I went to Beer Temple, where I saw you yesterday, mm-hmm. haunt of ours. And I drank a La Vermontois on tap, which is like a collaboration between Blaugy and Hill Farmstead, which is like a Belgian brewer. That was one of my favorites when I was working at West Lakeview. Uh, when I got into beer, like, all I was drinking were these saisons from them and like Fantôme and uh, Thierrier and all those types of beers were like the things I loved. But when I started working at a brewery that mostly ended up making high ABV beers and really hoppy beers, I wanted to be abreast of what that was and have like a, you know, know the language of what was popular in like that world. So I stopped drinking. I also had a weird reaction to a couple of Lambics where I like uh, had to like go home and take a bunch of Sudafed. So I stopped drinking uh, any wild beer for about two years because I thought I was allergic to them. And then I just started. Oh God. And then I was like, I, well, we'll see what happens. So I started drinking them again. And then <laughs> a couple years later, I was fine. Or actually, I'm still not sure what that was, but thank God, because a lot of what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. But so mm-hmm. I had uh, Vermontois, and I was like, oh, I forgot. I do still love this. I just don't like the thing that I've cornered myself into doing. Mm-hmm. So um, I told Gare that I was going to go out on my own and try to start my own brewery that is focused on the beers that I really love and believe in, which I didn't see any versions of being made the way that I wanted to drink them in 
Chicago for the most part, but also uh, getting the ones from Belgium was was pretty hard and still is pretty hard. So uh, I feel like it's an old, kind of an old school version of why you opened a brewery. Like I, you know, I couldn't get the English beers I liked, so I came back to Chicago and I started Goose Island. It's like that was kind of my my idea at that time was that I wanted to drink these beers all the time, and I had faith that there were enough people in Chicagoland that also wanted these beers, or, or at least didn't know they wanted them yet, that I could make a viable business out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that is definitely a, uh, at least a reason why people get into homebrewing, right? Is because they read about this thing in Randy Mosher's book and they were like, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna get into homebrewing. Yeah. At least if you're a Chicago homebrewer, that's probably what happened. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, that's, uh, that's exciting and like, it's a, it's a really weird sort of turn of events, right? Because you start working at West Lakeview. This is mirrors my experience a little bit too. Uh, I worked at a place that in some ways was like West Lakeview liquors, but yeah. the draft version, right? Um, uh, tons of Shelton brothers, uh, products. And so for a while that was the king of, those were the Kings of craft beer, right? Before you could get anything local. And so now you've gone ahead and rediscovered those things. Sure. Yeah, I think the first time, I don't know if I'm, I met you at this, but the first time I went to Local Option was before I worked at West Lakeview. I think I was still in college, and it was the McKellar Yeast Series was on draft. I don't even know if you worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, I, it was, there were four different, like, beers that were fermented with different yeasts, it, uh, which is funny to think about it then, because they weren't good. Like, <laughs> they were interesting, but no one was, like, it's, crazy think of a time where no one was like trying new things like Mm -hmm. everyone had core brands and like daisy cutter was innovative in chicago at the time and like yeah it was just europe was doing more interesting things in that regard than america at that point it's totally not that it's flipped but like the idea of what is innovative in american brewing is is completely changed where it was like, what's the weird stuff we can add to it? Right. And it's like, that's not innovative anymore. If everyone's doing it, it's by definition, you're not innovating anymore. Mm-hmm. Just because you used a different cereal doesn't mean you're innovating. Why, why do you think the, this is fun, this was one of the things I wanted to talk about was <laughs> like, uh, was this idea of innovation uh, that you hear a lot about. And maybe this term is thrown around a bit too much. What do you... Do you think what you do is innovative? Uh, it is. It is for me. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff where we're trying it, and I, I, one of the goals—it was a, not a major goal, but it was like a minor goal of starting this—was I wanted to have problems I couldn't just Google or go on Pro Brewer and have a hundred people tell me like, "Oh no, you idiot! You just gotta do dry hop it this way." Um, and so by working with a yeast that no one really works with. Uh, in Chicago at least and making styles that no one really is making the way we're making them being open top fermented and bottle conditioned I do think it's innovative for the market um, and for myself like no one that I know of is doing open top fermented saisons with a single strain of yeast now, I mean, that might be hyper specific but it is <laughs> like that is sometimes innovation is like really small uh, it's really a small group of people that need to that do something that's different um, and I think uh, it's not wholly innovative, but in such a loud market, doing things that are driven by the balance and subtlety and having faith that people will understand the beer and not need to get beat over the head with flavors is uh, not necessarily innovative, but it's, it's like something that's not being as done 
there's certainly breweries that do those types of things. Like Off Color does a great job of that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the majority of beer. And a lot of breweries have like a single beer that they'll be like, no, this is our crispy boy. But it's like it's it gets drowned out in your your other uh, portfolio. I think doing beers, only beers that are like going to be the the coolest thing about them is that they're subtle and, and balanced and nuanced. Uh, it's kind of innovative nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Definitely. I would say um, just because of how much the American palate has shifted, because there was such prominence in overloading the palate with whether it was hot profile in a West Coast IPA way earlier on to, you know, adding adjuncts that make it taste like a dessert. Um, I think doing more nuanced beers now is definitely, uh, it's a, it's a smaller market and it is more innovative for sure. Yeah. Well, I I also, on the smaller market idea, I think that the, probably the raw number of people who would appreciate something that is subtle, um, and not bombastic is larger. Like the raw number compared to eight years ago when I started working at Les Vicu, there are more people that want that thing. Uh, there's just so many more people that are drinking craft beer in general now that it seems like there are less. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller percentage of a much larger pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, like part of the gamble of this, starting this brewery is that I believe that there are more people now than ever that will be into this. It used to be that everyone kind of followed the same trajectory of like getting into pale ales and IPAs and then you kind of found stouts. There was like a cycle we would watch people go through when you when there were, weren't so many options and everyone was making beer with mostly four ingredients. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. Some people just get on the wheel and stop at hazy IPA and that's perfectly fine. But when mm-hmm. you're trying to open a brewery like this, you can't assume those people are all going to go through this like epiphany of craft beer and end up at like lager and saison at the end. It just isn't the case. They have options they like closer into that wheel and it's not about the discovery necessarily they're mm-hmm. pleasing themselves with the thing that the beer itself is an end to that pleasure mm-hmm. also like the the beer takes on other forms as well too when you're looking at beers that uh taste less like beer and more like something else that's familiar to them sure uh, the food items really mm-hmm. like specifically yeah. so i think that uh, i i agree with the assessment that I mean, certainly when we're talking about like 2011, 2012 beer drinkers, things like this were very fascinating to people. Um, And then bigger flavors kind of took over because there was always this assertion that craft meant something overt and obvious. Yeah. Um, But what I, in my own experience, I found that there were large audiences of people that were interested in this. It's just a matter of someone not putting it in front of them or not knowing what this was. And if you look at like a, a vast majority of beer drinkers, if they're drinking uh, adjunct lagers, they're still drinking relatively like non-involved beers from an ingredient standpoint too. Right. Sure. So they're drinking relatively simple beers still. Right. I, th- I think there also became a thing of uh, people interacting with styles of beer that were made by breweries that weren't ready to make them yet. So I think there was like a big like uncanny valley for like lager where people would have had a, something called a lager or a pilsner, but it was made by a brewery that had only really made IPA. And they were like, well, we got extra more time. We can put things in the tank. Let's try a, a lager. And they made it and it was good enough. And people had it and they're like, I, think, I don't think I like lagers. It's like, well, no, you don't like that lager. 
mm-hmm. you probably like Outlogger. You mm-hmm. probably like Dovetail, but you just like, haven't had that yet because your experience is through that lens. And I think mm-hmm. that's also the case for Cezanne. Uh, I think this has to be treated as differently as you treat a lager in your process, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think bottle conditioning is a huge part of that. Not to get too in the weeds on the technicals of this, but like it's just the, the yeast behaves differently than other yeasts, and you have to do what it wants, not what you want it to do. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to entertain that for a second. So why do you why do you think bottle conditioning is important for the beers that you do? I think that that at least a secondary fermentation to create the carbonation is what finishes the beer. Um, the way that these work, yeasts work, they're the diastatic yeasts people have been, at least in the brewing industry, have talked about, is that they actually secrete an enzyme, exo- like that's, so now it's exogenous to the cell itself, that breaks down longer chain sugars and starches, and then the yeast ferments the shorter chain sugars. So if you have longer chain sugars and things in your beer still, when you go and force carbonate and package it, eventually, and that yeast is still alive, eventually it's going to probably eat that stuff up mm-hmm. uh, or break it down. Um, so by bottle conditioning it and knowing that's going to happen, you actually get to a point where that's not happening anymore. The beer doesn't finish at absolute zero gravity. Um, there's still some sugar it won't ferment, but it also creates a totally different mouthfeel experience and uh and the way you approach these beers is different. You just slam a couple cans without opening, without even pouring them in a glass, you're gonna have a completely different experience than pouring a bottle conditioned bottle into a glass and then having full aroma hit you. Um, and that could be like a limiting factor to this where you kind of have to do it in this way and you kind of have to present it in a way where people will actually get to the, the aromas of it because otherwise it's very dry, be like weirdly peppery, you won't get the esters. It would be an interesting experiment, but if you can't smell it, it's gonna be completely different. So by putting it in single serve bottles that are bottle conditioned, it forces someone to engage with it in a specific way and to focus on it differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that, can you uh, introduce the first uh, beverages that we're enjoying here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we're doing a side-by-side, very cool, uh, <laughs> of a beer called Stay, which is a collaboration with our friends at Middlebrow, which is like a brewery and pizza restaurant in Logan Square. Actually, I used to live like right down the street. Um, and it is a Saison brewed with Thai basil and Saphir hops. And the idea comes from uh, being, I was in China at a beer festival and I was talking to this German like pedigreed brewmaster, like actually has the degrees and can call himself that, who was operating a large brewery in Taiwan. And the only time I saw him get really excited about a beer that wasn't like Reinheitsgebot, like German lager, um, was when he was, that he made at least, that he, when it was when he was talking about how well Thai basil paired with saphir hops, and he like geeked out on it, and so I kind of put it in like the back of my mind. And then before pre-pandemic and everything, we were talking to Middlebrow about doing a collaboration, and I was like, well, this is kind of low-hanging fruit, but you <clears throat> use basil and like a lot of stuff here. You make pizzas. So this Thai basil idea, I'd like to explore that. Um, and they were down. Uh, we made like a five-gallon batch to start. They, it was, turned out really great. Um, and then this one we just made. It was the first collaboration we did since we could like look other people in the eyes and that weren't living with you and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so we brewed a version at our brewery. We used our like house saison yeast, and then they brewed a version at their brewery, uh, same base recipe uh, with their like house culture, which is something they actually like, cultured off of plants that were in their their patio. Um, so right now we have two versions of our version. Um, so it's really getting kind of confusing, I think. Uh, <laughs> and half is bottle conditioned with the blended Britannomyces. And the other half doesn't have the Britannomyces, but both are bottle conditioned. 
so we can drink them next to each side by side. And um, they're not, they haven't been in the bottle too long, so the Britannomyces isn't too aggressive yet, but over time it gets even funkier and weirder and uh, bretty, if you will. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, so that's something that you think is an important part of the experience with these, with these beers is one, it takes time for these beers to bottle condition in the first place, right? Yeah. You're not pulling it off. This is the exact opposite of, we just dry hopped this beer and put it in a can. We dry hopped it at six in the morning, <laughs> put it moved in the it. Yeah. We bypassed the bright tank and just threw it straight into, <laughs> uh, into cans, right? Yeah, this is so, the opposite of that. I mean, I think our beers are in package before they're released at three to four times as long as most beers are from grain to getting packaged. Um, and our beers are in like before they get packaged are about three weeks minimum. Mm -hmm. So yes, this is a much longer process. Um, I don't know if it's necessary to have the Britannomyces in there. I think the, like the bottle conditioning is, is necessary. It doesn't have to be with Britannomyces. Some of my favorite beers from Belgium don't have Britannomyces in or at least I've been told they don't have Britannomyces in there. Notoriously cagey. Um, but it's a cool way to have a couple different versions of the same beer that will evolve differently over time. Bottle conditioning extends the shelf life pretty significantly. So you can keep holding out on these for a while and they should, the one without Brett should retain its character relatively well. And the one with, with Brett will evolve its character in a different way. Mm -hmm. So it's much, for me, it's more fun to like try them side by side at different mm -hmm. points and see. It's also a way for us to figure out what do we want to do when we have stuff that's longer aging in like barrels and things like that. Like what types of Brett do we want to use? We use it Sometimes we use the same blend and sometimes we pull things out or put different ones in to see uh, how they age over time. So when you're uh, selecting Brett and you're talking about using yeast, um, yeast can come to us in a lot of different ways. And you're also in the third, in the second way, you're talking about capturing as well with reference to uh, Middlebrow's, the mm -hmm. finishing character for the Middlebrow beer. Yeah. Um, how does that... Uh, Talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of that, and are you using dry yeast, wet yeast, um, and are you able to reuse yeast? Um, what goes into the decision-making of all that? Yeah, so our yeast starts as a strain that Omega just has available. I think it's even available to home brewers. Um, but through the, how the temperature we ferment it at, the process we go through, it evolves differently over time. Like it's way more flocculent, it gets way faster, and it creates different esters as we go. And once we get to like a certain number of generations, it kind of levels off and does what we want it to do. Um, but yeah, we so we start with that, like a commercial pitch from them. Um, but then we open top ferment, which means that we don't have a top on our fermenter, which most conicals are enclosed. Um, it, it does have a top, just a really large manway that we leave open actually allows for more oxygen contact during primary fermentation which creates like uh, significantly more esters which are the fruity components that yeast create like the ours is known for like juicy fruit gum uses the same exact ester that ours creates in really high quantities theirs is just like a synthetic version of it um and like banana and, and all these other things it also makes uh phenolics that's less um contingent upon the oxygen exposure but because we do that open top fermentation I'm able to harvest yeast from the top of the tank, which is actually healthier yeast. Um, most yeasts have been pressured to be selected from the bottom of the tank. They're bottom fermenting because that's just the nature of how the, what's easier in an industrial process, but the yeast naturally wants to be at the top of the tank. Um, so I actually go in there with like a sterilized bowl and scoop it out and put it into like a corny keg 
um, or the first couple days of fermentation. Um, and through that, select, like the pressure on that is that that's more flocculent yeast, meaning it comes out of solution faster. So the beer becomes clearer over generations when we're using that yeast. Sometimes I'll bottom crop some too, depending on the health of the yeast. But it's because of that selective pressure, which is how yeasts evolve, we get a certain type of our yeast. So after a couple of generations, we have a different version, slightly different version than what we would have purchased directly from Omega. Mm-hmm. Um, but m- almost all of what we do currently is still just a, starts as that single strain. Pretty much everything starts as that single strain. We have some stuff in barrels right now. I started that as that single strain was transferred to barrels and then had Britannomyces pitched into it. And we have some, some stuff in barrels right now that was a mixed culture that started with that yeast, but then also some stuff I grew up from my sourdough starter and then dregs from the bottom of, of bottles of uh, mixed culture beer that I really enjoyed. Um, did that answer the question? I think I kind of got it. In the weeds. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> you uh, you touched on where things start and mm-hmm. what you do to um, create further generations out of what you bu- of what you're getting from Omega. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of? There's this idea in your head of what you kind of want the beer to be from a yeast flavor profile perspective, and when you're working with this kind of yeast and this kind of fermentation, sometimes it can go out of whack. Yeah, the, um, it, when it's a single strain, like we're doing most of this stuff with, it's less typically gonna go out of whack. This is also a, a pretty forgiving yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, people have some misconceptions about it too, where like we ferment it really, really hot. People, people assume it would be bad for yeast, but it's actually what yeast naturally wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so by allowing it to start hot and then free rise, like not control the temperature at all, you're actually, uh, it's probably, it's healthier for the yeast's natural state, mm-hmm. which most commercial yeasts in their natural state do not produce flavors that you want. They can get like wet dog and all these kind of weird things if you ferment too hot. It happens that this yeast produces really beautiful flavors when you let it do what it naturally wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, why that is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but we're, we're doing things that it wants to do, which mm-hmm. means that it's going to do... and it happens to align with it being flavors that we find pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, so until we start doing stuff and when we do stuff in barrels with like Brett and, and mixed culture and stuff, that's how it's much more likely to like get yeah. off the rails. Um, some can be like really, really sulfuric. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just now becomes how long do you wait for it to like quote unquote <laughs> turn around mm-hmm. and how much, and then when do you just kind of give up and say that it's gone down the path that you, can't bring it it's not coming back from um and that just has to do with blending and like Mm -hmm. what you decide to put in a blend and what you don't now we haven't released anything like that so nothing in barrels right now is terrible it's gonna get dumped but there's some stuff where i'm like that's not great so we'll see what happens to it Mm -hmm. um so is that like your only remedy then if something is going in a direction that you're not too much of a fan of is just give it more time or is there another correction you can kind of take to (laughs) Help. I'm sure it. there's many corrections yeah, yeah. you could take if you wanted to. <laughs> it depends on your um, your view of what you're doing. Some mm-hmm. people think you can dry hops things like that and dry hop flaws out or overly right. fruit things. Um, so far, I, I don't. We haven't done anything like that. <laughs> I don't think we will. Uh-huh. Hard to say at this point, but <laughs> um, I don't. I've done a lot of, of barrel blending in my life, not of mixed culture stuff, but mostly of, of stouts and. Uh, barley wine, and you find things that you can and you can't blend out or or cover. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
part of this is like, I don't know. I'll have to find out what I can figure out how to blend into something. And some things that are detrimental in high co- concentrations can be really beautiful in lower concentrations. Mm-hmm. Like if something's like acetic, like uh, balsamic-y and vinegary, that's really not something you want to drink too much of uh, on its own. But in like a small proportion in an otherwise sour beer, it can add this like a different acidity that makes it more complex and more interesting. So stuff like that, that's all about how you construct it in the blending phase. Mm-hmm. Should we uh, describe what we're drinking here? Yeah, I feel like we, we started on this train. Yeah, no. Well, also, uh, I feel like we haven't done that in a little while. Yeah, no, we, yeah, we're a little bad at that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think if you're talking about juicy fruit as a character, which is a really great term for this particular, this, the expressive aspect of this yeast, I think that that's definitely something that comes through, whether it's here or in uh, beers from Blagy, for example. You yeah. definitely get that, and... What I've always been taught about this with far less of a scientific understanding than what you have about it is that with beers like this, the producers that have cultivated these yeasts over years and years, that's what they do is they rip they rip the temperature. It goes yeah. high, and that's what the yeast likes, and that's where it's expressive as well, too. Yeah, um, yeah. and so the Blougie one specifically I know came from DuPont. It just over time, it, would t- it ended up tasting different because of how they used it. Um, the DuPont yeast, they never tell you what it came from, but if you look at like genetic, uh, mapping of these things, it's more similar to red wine yeast than it is to a lot of beer yeasts. Um, so I think it was something from red wine. And it's also interesting to note that like these yeasts would have been discarded in different parts of the world. Uh, like the phenolic character is sometimes viewed as a negative thing. So if you're in Germany and you're not making wheat beer, these would have been tossed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Belgium, they're like, eh, tastes good, yeah, whatever, call it whatever you want to call it. It's DuPont now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting, like, the, the part of the world kind of selected for this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fruit characteristic in both of these uh, comes through in a really, really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is something beyond the uh, the yeast esters that is giving off some of this fruit profile? Can you link that to the hop usage? and? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, Saphir specifically um, has like a lot of kefir lime leaf and like lemon grass, um, which is probably why it pairs so well with that Thai basil. Um, yeah, I think the, the fruit was mostly coming from from those two components. Sometimes I can't remember if we this has triticale in it too, which is like this interesting grain. And, and if we use heavy amounts of that, it can be almost melony. Um, I don't necessarily get that in this so i think we use a lower amount so it's more nutty than it turns into melon for me mm-hmm. but i think the most of the fruits hop in uh ester driven mm-hmm. yeah saphir is a is a really beautiful uh hop that i've had mostly in the context of lagers but uh it shows through really really nicely and i i don't remember which the first one you poured was the non-brett right yeah okay mm-hmm. so in the brett the biggest differences for me are it's a little bit more peppery and uh there's like a, the mouth feels a little bit different, but I can't tell if that's, uh, as anything to do with anything apart from maybe the sandwich I ate earlier today. <laughs> In what way? Is it thinner or is it thicker? Could be that I poured yours really badly. Like, mm-hmm. no, there's a, there's like a more of a denseness of the, what I'm perceiving as the carbonation, but that sure. could also be like mild acidity. It could be uh, like a number of different things where my pal's just perceiving it. 
It's probably higher, more highly carbonated. I haven't tested them, but mm -hmm. uh, it's very likely it's higher carbonated, even though it's just it's the same beer. There's just things that the, even though our yeast will eat a lot of things and other yeast won't, Brett will continue to eat things that even our yeast won't, and mm -hmm. create carbonation. So, yeah. so when we're looking at uh, going back to a fun time in beer that that we <laughs> both enjoyed, yeah. who were some of the the producers that you enjoyed the most and that you kind of seemingly memory banked? Uh, Blaugy was a big one. Uh, but back then, Phantom was the one that I was like really into, uh, which is can be very tragic because sometimes their beers are awful, but sometimes they are transcendent and like things where you're like, I don't know how they did this, um, but that they were huge. Um, De La Seine was, has always been something that I've been really into. Um, uh, Cantillon and, and Dree and those guys, obviously, I was never as much into the heavy, heavier acidic presenting beers, but they're so complex and beautiful and treats whenever you get to have them. But my thing was almost always more, oh, and Auberon, like more in that like uh, supposedly single strain of yeast, um, not super acidic, not super funky uh, world of Cezanne. I just thought it was, they were so beautifully put together and so like wonderfully simple and complex. And that's something that I like, I'm really interested in is how you take very simple inputs and create something that's more than the sum of just these malts and these hops and then it's like the it's more interesting to me than I know it's going to taste like this if I put more of it in there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think uh <clears throat> those for me were were very important along with maybe I would put uh Didola in there as well mm -hmm. oh yeah um especially for your high yeast fermentation <laughs> uh and um uh, Glas and Torin as oh, well. Yeah. I think that's a, a favorite of yours as well. There's a video on YouTube of the the guy who like phone, founded and owns Glas and Torin talking about making Cezanne. And I think when we brew and bottle, we watch it every single time. It's like two minutes long. It's amazing. He's wearing this like stretched out like tank top, and he's like seventy something. It's uh, it's an awesome video. He has like our favorite quote. Like if, if Iswas has a favorite quote, it's him saying. Uh, he doesn't like sweet beers. Sweet is good for horses or maybe elephants, but not for people. And like we say that to each other at the brewery all the time. <laughs> um, it's just like really funny, and and we agree with it. Like we don't like sweet things. Nothing wrong if you do, but it like covers up a lot of stuff that you can otherwise find really beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Glas and Torn. There's one other that I just popped in my head. I, well, it'll come to me. I'll keep going. Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> It was like the Shelton Brothers and the the B United portfolio that had all of, all of those. Uh, oh, Durank. Duranka, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> were you at the the Shelton Brothers uh, festival in you in Worcester? Met, in Worcester, yes, yeah, but yeah. Uh, in Portland. No, I was only at the the one in Worcester. Uh, so uh, Nino, I think from Duranka. Uh -huh. This was. I don't know what got into him, but he, this was, there was a, an inside joke. Maybe you were in it at local option, but it was about pellets because Nino <laughs> was going around to every, uh, brewery's, uh, table and tasting the beers and then making a disgusted look on his face. And he would say pellets. And then he would, <laughs> uh, walk to the next one, uh, Hill Farmstead included. So oh, amazing. Yeah. So here you have, well, 
to to complete the picture there. So Duranque is known as a brewery that only uses whole, whole cone hops in yeah. their beers. They were probably one of the original, like what Belgians would call craft brewers yeah. as well too. Um, and they make beers in this style. Right. Uh, but I didn't know that he was as uh, keen on other people <laughs> using whole cone hops yeah, much I, like him, but well, we're also not in I mean, hop growing regions. Right, right, right. I mean, I've had a lot of beers in my life, and I could not tell you if one was a pelletized <laughs> hop or if it was whole cone hop. Uh, that, that's a next level mm-hmm. specific type of palate. It's like the, the dudes from... Uh, from Dovetail that say they can taste the difference between a whirlpooled beer and one that went through a cool ship to have the, the hops fall out of it. And I'm like, man, that's awesome if you can do that, but that sounds bonkers. Like, I don't even know what you would taste for for that. Well, they look at the label and say, is it ours? <laughs> yeah, they only like OEC in their own beers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a wine uh, uh, sommelier's palate, you know, mm-hmm. being able to tell different Different, same grape, different regions. Sure. It's insane. Yeah, it's bonkers. It's like next level being able to discern the subtle intricacies and in everything you're drinking. Yeah, totally. I think uh, this is my personal bias, obviously, but in my experience with wine people and beer people, when you're talking to brewers, they're more interested in like figuring out the process, whereas wine people tend to be more figuring out like, the region and being like, oh, it's tennis ball, so it's got to be this one. Oh, and it's legs like this, so it's got to be this vintage. And it's more this like puzzle of like solving what it was rather than like how did it get like that. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Which it makes me so frustrated when I talk to my friends who are excellent. Like I have a bunch of friends that are psalms and people that are like have excellent palates, and I'm like, well, why is it like that? And they're like, you know, the ground. And it's like the it's ground. not all the ground, man. No. Like it's, it's like I love that story. I love the like the right. romance of that, but. As someone who makes stuff, I'm like, no, there's no way if I went there and just mashed up <laughs> these grapes, it would be the same. So they're doing something to them, whether it's minimal intervention or what. Right. right? But not doing something is also a choice, right? So like, it's exactly. about the choices or the choices to not do things that they're doing that are super interesting. And then they know they probably know why they're doing it, the winemaker. Well, because their dad did it. And their right. dad did it. Right. <laughs> so that's a matter of just doing something because someone else did right. it. And if, if uh, you know, someone from a, a prestigious winemaking family told me that, I'd, I'd just have to be like, all right, fine, fine. I can't, I can't argue with that. But when my friends are like, I don't know, man, that's just how they do it. I, I get really frustrated. Yeah. Well, there, I forget um, what the, um, uh, okay, cool. Sorry. One. I forget what the family in Italy was, but um, the grandfather had always put the wine in a certain oak barrel or certain kind of barrel. And um, the son, when he took over the vineyard and, you know, all the operations, he switched out the barrels that they were aged in. And like, dude, family uprising, (laughs) like because you changed tradition. It's just like. I, I think that is the difference, in, especially in European wine making, as opposed to, um, well, I mean, you could argue the same with certain styles of uh, beer making as well. It's very much tradition based, and it's been done the same way over and over and over again. Sure. Um, 
But I, I do think the, the line with wine is the, the process is generally the same, no matter what style you're making, and your yeast never really changes either, uh, season to season. So a lot of it is really just variant on the weather that year and the, the ground that it's growing in. A and when you choose to harvest, you know, that's, that's a huge factor in sure. the way a wine comes out. It, it is it's more, not enough for Mike, though. I, I no, might just it's not, not like that answer because beer is yeah. so manipulated by the producer, right? It's Absolutely. the most manipulated spirit or ma manipulated alcohol, probably, right? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I would I would argue distilled spirits maybe, but but even then, probably not. Yeah, it depends on the one. On, maybe yeah. gin is more manipulated, but like bourbon, it's just Bourbon's like just, just put it in the wood. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and like, and they're also not controlling fermentation really. They're controlling the distillation process for sure, but. I don't know. It's like as someone who the entirety of what beer turns out to be is raw ingredient plus choices. Mm -hmm. uh, I get that's the same for wine, I suppose. It's just frustrating for me to not have an answer of like, well, they and there are I guess for me, it's frustrating that there are chemical things happening and biological things happening in that process. Mm -hmm. um, and beer, you kind of have to know you should know and probably try to manipulate and control in some ways, whereas the wine people are just like. I want to know why that's happening. They're like, no, it's just it's what it's always always happened. It's like, I guess I have to accept that. But uh, I don't know. It just, it just it's something that's a pet peeve of mine. Like I talk to my wine friends. Oh, but I think you see some of that with uh, lambic producers when they're talking about why certain um, barrels are certain ways, right? Because mm -hmm. you have uh, with within lambic production, you have maybe a variety of different types of barrels that are in there. Uh, that are in their arsenal to use and they may not have a specific reason outside of, yeah, the barrel's just shaped this way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right. But they may not have a larger reason than just that, which yeah. is uh, similarly unuseful for, for your assessment <laughs> of things, yeah. but is also like they, they will say the same thing of, yeah, we moved into a new building and we sprayed it down with Lambic. Uh, yeah. We don't know if that works. I think that was uh, Jean Van Roy said that in a uh, Belgian smack episode. That yeah. I, he was like, I don't know if this is good, if it worked, but right. and we had to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, it reminds me of a conversation I had with the, the guy who runs Smoke. Uh, and he was talking about how he nerds out and he would go, he went down to South Carolina and he would be like, What kind of wood are you using? They're like, Whatever the shop next door had scraps of it's like they're like it's not like he's like well if we use 30 percent post oak and 60 percent, it's like the people that are doing these things that have been doing them forever there's like we this is just what we do and mm -hmm. so sometimes you have to accept that and it'd be like you're not seeking to do something that's outside like i'm trying to do something that's like outside of my normal self right i'm mm -hmm. gonna figure out how to make these beers really well and to do that i gotta seek something outside and figure out what's going on. Whereas these people are like, no, whatever beer I make, John Monroe is like, any, any of the beer I make is Cantillon beer. He doesn't have to worry about like impressing anyone or anything like that or doing anything else. It, it is like, it's Romani Conti. It might be a worse mm -hmm. year, but like it still is that. Whereas like American beer, it's like, well, no one really has a name or reputation like that for the most part or a lineage like that. So you mm -hmm. kind of have to make it all the time. And to do that, I feel like I need to figure all that shit out. Well, also, well, as, sorry, some, <laughs> uh, someone like Jean Manoir would say Lambic is simple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's one recipe. Uh -huh. And uh, no matter how complicated, if we look at a brew sheet and say, that looks like a pain in the ass to make, 
uh, he would say, no, it's it's simple. You right. Know? That's what we do. Well, yeah. yeah. And that comes from a humble beginnings, a very long lineage of that. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, it once you do it for so long, it just becomes habit. Right. You and know, you in those cases, you're, you're minimized in your amount of choices in the manipulation you can do. You know how you're going to manipulate the, the raw ingredients. So then your only choices are how you then combine them at the end, right? Mm-hmm. So like you're, it's interesting that like, I don't know, you have, you have less choices, so it creates this completely different idea of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're, in, you're in much more in a tradition than anything we're doing. Yeah, it's a lot like wine yeah. at that point. <laughs> yeah. It pretty much is. Yeah. Should we move on to another uh, another yeah. tasting here? Let's sure. do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a rinse here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. That's the good stuff right there. Oh, we're pretty close in temp, too. Nice. Sweet. Yeah, these might be a little bit more uh, excited to get out of the bottle than the other. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want to do it right over the Roadcaster? That's, that's right. <laughs> All right. Coming in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, sorry. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. So the first round that we did was two different beers. Or two beers, the same base, one uh, with a different conditioning. Yes. And now we have this is the, the same, same beer. beer, same conditioning, different uh, bottles, different package format. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, what we're opening, what we're opening now is uh, called Spandrel. And the idea of it is that we, well, half of this went into barrels, so we tried to make something that would be suitable for that and be inviting to, um, like. Inviting okay. to like uh, the microbes that are normally make sour beer or mixed culture beer. Mm-hmm. So it's made with aged hops. It's brewed with raw spelt. Um, and then this version was fermented in um, stainless steel. But the idea of a spandrel is in uh, evolutionary biology. Uh, it's a phenotypic expression of, of genes that were um, evolved to do others for other reasons. So like it, uh, you might have blue eyes because of any number of reasons. I actually got one. Down. Oh, cool. Um, so, but this arose out of other selective pressures. It wasn't the, the primary reason. So the idea of the spandrel is that the taste of aged hops, uh, the flavor of raw spelt, and we bottlenecked with this with Britannomyces, all things you wouldn't want to do in normal beers, but have evolved to be pleasurable things for people who like the style of beer because of their involvement with Lambic. Mm-hmm. That's like where the, the name and the idea for the beer came from. Your glasses, um, and so in that tradition of things that, um, things that aren't supposed to be done, we packaged some of this in green bottles. Green bottles are notoriously bad for skunking beer, but they're frequently used in Europe in Wallonia where the style of beer or the style of beer that we're making is, uh, is popular. So some people have a feeling that the skunkiness and the kind of the um, quote-unquote off flavors that it creates have become canonical to like the style of beer. You might get a little bit chunky in here. Yeah. Look at those weedies. Oh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Another one's a 750. There'll be more for that. So along those lines of like things that have evolved from other selective pressures that have ended up becoming part of a flavor profile, the green bottle and like the somewhat potentially unpleasurable skunkiness of it uh, have, you know, also lovable characteristics. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So you've really tried to mirror the medium with the beverage. Yeah. In this way. And like you can now like check these out with green and brown glass and see, do you like the skunked one, the one that's technically flawed or should be technically flawed? This has been in a box basically since we packaged it, so it's not going to be too skunky. Um, or do you like the one that's not technically flawed? Because flaws are only... Flaws, flaws are, if you see them that way. Right. <laughs> in, yeah. In context. And then kind of because of the need to judge things is how a lot of the, those like types of flaws arise and like the BJCP or, you know, none of this stuff is going to hurt you or kill you. Like there are off flavors in beer. It's just things that people say are or not correct. And I kind of disagree with that on its face, but more often than not, I agree when things are like, diastole's not great most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so there's mm -hmm. certain flaws that are obvious regardless of where they show up. But sometimes there's context there's things that that would in one way could be considered flaws and another where it could be acceptable by style or could actually complement the flavor of the intention of that beverage right yeah entirely and that's like the, the point of this beer existing is that all of these things will be flaws in other styles of beer but uh you guys tell me but when you drink them they're actually pretty pretty nice together and create something that's like delicate and subtle and and kind of pretty um And things like diastole makes things taste like butter, right? Mm -hmm. But butter's delicious in a lot of contexts, not necessarily mm -hmm. in your beer, but it doesn't mean it's a bad flavor unto itself in the context of beer. It's not as pleasurable. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I have a lot no, of opinions about off flavors. No, absolutely. I think that it it, it depends, and you know, in a certain way, there's it's also palate contingent. There's people that are uh, more susceptible or sensi sensitive to things like acetyl as well too sure. I'm, I'm pretty blind to it mm -hmm. um i've trained myself to be able to uh, detect it but it's not easy for me and it's like something that ruins beers for people and i can drink a lot of beers and be like i have diacetyl and be like that's pretty good mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah i had to train myself on that too but um there are uh several people that you and i both know that are <laughs> extremely sensitive to diacetyl yeah that's really one um that like butterscotch milk, uh, almost like or more butter that, uh, it's really one way or another for people. Like either they totally feel it or yeah. they don't see it at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, uh, we did, I did this like, uh, Pilsner tasting at the beer temple. And one of the ones I gave the highest score at like half the people were like, this is a complete butter bomb. I'm like, I don't know. I thought it was pretty good, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is interesting because I've had the same beer knowing that people think it's a butter bomb and gotten diacetyl on it, when I, even though I know I'm not sensitive to it. So it's like that when it's in your head like that, too, it it, it messes with you. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. So you you spend uh, some time. So you spend some time sometimes uh, judging beers uh, mm -hmm. at beer competitions. We've judged together at Fobab and you judge many more beers than I do at Fobab. I typically retire earlier in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, like for, for someone that hasn't sat in those conversations before, what do you, what is it like sitting with people? Like when you <laughs> sit with someone like Phil Markowski or a Randy Mosher or someone uh, that's been drinking beer since before you were born. Yeah. <laughs> how do you, uh, how do you level with them 
on on beverages. Uh, it's you know it's it's interesting. Uh, you, sometimes you can't. Like some of those people at Fobab, like what we, where we've seen each other, like some of those people have been judging Fobab literally since before it was Fobab. Like it was just people hanging out. So to say that something that they think about this is wrong is really difficult because like styles evolve and everything, but these guys don't evolve as quickly as the style <laughs> as, or as what's popular um, in the culture. So sometimes you, you can't. Sometimes they, they are the stronger voice. And like that, that's one of the things that people don't realize about a lot of these festivals, or at least Fobat, that's what I've judged the most, where when you get down to those like gold medal rounds, it's not like a rubric. You don't even get like a scoring sheet for the medal rounds. You just write down your tasting notes and then you have a conversation with people. So uh, if someone with a ver that's very charismatic likes a beer a lot, you know, and that, that one might end up winning a gold medal. Like it's, <laughs> or someone that has like holds a lot of weight and other people are reverent to, like that one might win a gold medal even if it's not the one that you liked the best or that you that was even technically whatever that would mean the best beer for that category. Um, it's 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 in one way very heartening in that it's not just simply robotic and it's not just simply an algorithm. Otherwise, why not just run everything to like a gas chromatograph and say who the winner was? Um, mm. But in another way, it's it's like a weird seeing how the sausage is made moment where you're like, just on this day, this group of people found these beers to be the most worthy of medals. And in, uh, having won them, it's easy to say now, it's much less meaningful knowing that's how these things get decided. <laughs> I don't think if, I, if I'd never won a medal there, I'd probably be like, no, 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 it's still an important thing. But I get to like have the arrogance of... Uh, I, it, it's a lot less meaningful because it's just that day with the, that certain group of four people who are like very highly trained tasters and have very refined palates, but it's still just those people's opinion of that beer on that day. Um, so th that was pretty freeing. <laughs> I was like, I don't really care about this anymore. Um, of course, you still want to win those things. It's better to win things even if you don't respect them as much uh, than it is to lose them. But uh, you also started entering stouts and barley wine, so you didn't have to judge those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a combination of that's anymore. what we were making the most of, and that's what we thought were, were the best things we were making. But also, like, I didn't, if we had something that was like, it's between, you know, a stout and a barley wine as an entry or something that was going to be in a, uh, a different category where I might have to judge stout or barley wine <laughs> at like nine in the morning, we would, that, that went into the decision of which to enter in some way. <laughs> um, nine... 99 times out of 100, or I guess that, that can't be right because we never ended up in under 100 beers. But more, way more often than not, it was what beers we thought we, we had made the best that year. Um, and then a little bit of it was me not wanting to drink stouts. But then that kind of bites you in the in the ass too because if you get into like the sour, can I swear on here? I can't, right? Yes, Sorry, it's, listen, it's I'll explicit. Listen, I'll listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, it, you start in the early rounds of like sour, acidic, uh, wild beer, you get some real doozies. Mm -hmm. and you can have beers that are just ruin your palate for the rest of the day, too, if, you, if you're worried about the judging or just tear your stomach up or just really vile. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of, yeah, once I, for a while I couldn't, I said I couldn't drink those. And then when I realized I wasn't allergic, I'm like, no, I want to do that one. And then one year I'm like, these are, I, when I would do stout or barley wine, at least something, at least the number they want you to pass on to the next round would go forward. There were enough that were good enough to go forward. Uh, more often than not, when I would do wild beers, less than the amount that they 
say your maximum to pass forward to the next rounds would go, and 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 then more, more even more often than not, almost zero would go. Mm-hmm. At times mm-hmm. when one one would go, and then most of the time none because it was just not. They just were terrible, terrible beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that to be my experience with that particular world of uh, of beers and FOBAB judging was that those were the most difficult to drink in the morning. And also there was uh, a wild uh, fluctuation in quality of what was submitted too. It's got, it's so strange. Like to, to even further degrade the value of those awards, like if you get one good beer on a pa- panel of really bad beers, it could be great for that beer or it could be terrible for that beer because everything is so like rev- that's the one so that's rev- out of whack and goes or, out straight away or you just your palate's so whacked out that you're like oh, i don't this is like not even fit the category or it's got some flaw to it that i i'm perceiving because of the aftertaste of the last one like it's it's a real real weird crazy process but i don't know how you would do it better to be honest like i i'm not being trying to be critical of it it's just like it is the like it's a good process for what you have to do mm-hmm. it's just like kind of crazy to be like that's how people really care about these awards and that's how it's done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I just think that it's, um, it's a lot of work in one day for your palate. Yeah. I think it, it would, I mean, it's difficult to get all those people to go to a place more than, yeah. more than once or, to, or twice, uh, in a week, for you sure. know, people coming in from out of town or people that have, have limited schedules and things like that. Uh, I do think that there's value in probably judging on two days so right. that people come in with refreshed palates and you could do a lot of the bulk work in one day and judge uh, a smaller amount the next day. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'll be, I'll judge again. Like I don't, I didn't, I don't know. We didn't get invites this year. Yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's also something like it was fun when I was doing it, but I, I, wasn't a great day. <laughs> like it was the same thing with like this is a dream job. It's like if you do it for like five years in a row, sometimes you're just like I don't know if I want to get up at nine a.m. and go and drink all this beer and have a lot of it be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it, it's definitely a thing where it, it's just as much fun actually sitting and hanging out with those people. Yeah, that is the best part I think. Than like trudging through oversoured beers. Yeah, mm-hmm. well. It also, I early on, I used to always like write down the numbers of the really bad ones on my hand, and then go try to find them. And I realized how like terrible that was, and I stopped doing it. I was like, I don't need to find this. I don't need to like, in my even in my, to myself, laugh at this person that probably thought they made a great beer, or maybe something happened to bottle conditioning, or something. There's there, there was an angle to it that I didn't understand, uh, or it was miscategorized, but. It used to be more of like a look at this guy, and now it's like, oh man, they tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, and the other thing is, there have been beers one year that have been really, really great, and then the next year it's it's not uh, it's not a great beer too. So I think it's that's yeah. also shows a lot about uh, the nature of wild or mixed fermentation beers. Sure. Mm-hmm. Is spont- spontaneous fermentation something that interests you as a as a manufacturer? Potentially, I mean, it's one of those things that I think to do well, you have to do a lot of, and you really have to focus on. And we don't want to. Do, I don't want to do anything that is just for like the fact, like, oh, this is the spontaneous one. That's pretty cool, right? Um, and it's not something that gets me super, super excited. Uh, I like the idea of it. 
I don't like the prospect of it being a commercial process that I would have to go through and then the pressures of having beer that I've sat on for two, three years and then having to say like, this isn't good enough. Uh, and that to make really high quality spontaneous beer, you, I think you have to do that. Uh, we have a little bit of that going because uh, like the yeast we're using in the beer barrels we have right now is prospected from my sourdough starter. So that's naturally you know found, but it's not like, you know, cool shipping and all that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's places that do that really well, and I don't know if I would do it as well as them. It would seem to me where we are right now, it would feel like a like a gimmick or something that like we were supposed to be doing because we're a saison brewery, and that's the last thing that I want to do. Mm-hmm. But that could change mm-hmm. in the future if something happens. Like I was making double IPAs six years ago, and I had a really good saison that reminded me I love saisons. So maybe we'll be making double dry hopped spontaneous beers. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, or you, hopefully this doesn't happen because this would impact more than just you, but you have a situation where all of a sudden your entire brewery is, uh, you have an infection, (laughs) you have a Jester King or you have a Brecker or you have a situation where, oh, this is what we're doing now. Yeah. But that would Uh, impact, uh, because, um, well, actually this leads into, so tell us a little bit about how you end up making the beers, where you make them too. Yeah. So we brew out of Mars. So we have separate mm. equipment um, completely from what they use to brew their beers. Um, and we use their pilot system more often than not. Sometimes you use their main brew house, but there's no risk of contamination there. Um, and we have to like push their old psycho brew out of the back room, push it to where the gas connection is, connect it, set everything up, uh, then brew on it and break it all down on the days we brew. Um, and then we have a handful of five barrel tanks that we do all this stuff in separate hoses, separate gaskets, everything's segregated. Um, yeah, and, and uh, in the future we plan on having our own facility. Who knows what the timeline is on that given everything that's going on in the world. We plan on doing quote unquote clean beers in there as well. Um, but you have to be incredibly careful. There are places that do it um, and you just have to be diligent about your cleaning and about your uh, segregation of your equipment. Um, yeah, if it, but worst case scenario, if it all got infected, we would just turn back into a saison only brewery. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the 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 thing that people think that like Britannomyces is the big problem, but really these diastatic like saison and Belgian yeasts are a much bigger problem because they're much more aggressive in their fermentation. So like Britannomyces will hyper attenuate, ferment out more sugars and normal stuff, but it will take a long time to do it. So if you catch it, you can recall that stuff or you can do whatever you need to do to relabel it or whatever, whatever the brewery's going to do. Whereas with this diastatic yeast, it can happen in a matter of weeks. So you'll go from having a beer that's normally carbonated to a beer that's blowing up in the shelves way, way faster. So um, I went into this knowing that, knowing we also want to make clean beers at some time. But part of that like is a a shield from other breweries trying to do what we're doing too. Like it's, it would be harder. It'll be, it will be a little bit more expensive on the equipment side and hose side and gasket side and stuff like that. Um, but it's worth, worth it for what I think a brewery, should, my brewery should be making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for those breweries, you're, you're working in a completely different pace and you're working with a different pentameter, like generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, than a brewery that is brew, move it over quick, get it out quick, and then 
totally open things up as quick as possible and right. move things around. Like it, it, it's a different ball game altogether. Right. And like it, something like eight years ago, even five years ago, getting beer made, packaged, and out the door was the, the 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 goal. Right. You need to sell. You could sell as much beer as you made for most breweries. Right. You, you could sell more than you made. That's why you need to turn tanks and all that. Like I think we're in Chicago at least we're towards the tail end of that being the case for most breweries. Some breweries are still like that where they you, they can't make enough. Um, and I feel very fortunate actually to be opening this brewery at the tail end of that where uh, I don't feel the pressure to pivot to what we can just sell, how much liquid can we sell as fast as we can with the equipment we have um, as a business model. People are more understanding of like this is, we're doing this because th what differentiates us is that like this takes longer, but it, the result is a higher quality product. Whereas before it's like, no, we have 12, 15 barrel tanks. We need to turn those over every two weeks. And like we've set up our debt structures so that we have to pay the people back with like all the beer we've put out. Like we put out 3,000 barrels of beer this year or else we're not going to pay our loan back. And it's not that, like, anyone opening a brewery with that in mind in 2020 is insane. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to have an interesting perspective and an idea of why you're doing things uh, and to structure the business portion of your brewery to reflect that you're not just going to be able, you don't want to like pivot to whatever the hot thing is to sell your beer out that same week. Like that, look at breweries making seltzers now. Like I can't imagine most of those breweries are very excited about that. Um, but they have the equipment and they have the debt and they have, or they have investors and want their payout. And I think that's the decision behind most of that. Or they have payroll, which is a much mm -hmm. better, like a, a totally reasonable reason to do that. Mm -hmm. so you have to, mm -hmm. you want to keep your people employed, but I think if you polled everyone who makes a seltzer across the country right now, if you ever asked, did you want to do this when you open this place? I can't imagine any of them would say yes. And right. I, don't, I don't ever want to be in a position where like I left a thing at Pipeworks, a pretty sweet job to be making things I don't care about anymore. Mm -hmm. So what we're figuring out now is how to structure the company financially and find right partners for understanding that, mm -hmm. which we haven't, we've barely started because of the whole <laughs> pandemic. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is, that's the goal. This is to have a, long sustaining brewery that makes like really high quality world-class beers that we really believe in mm -hmm. um and not just make as much of it as we can mm -hmm. Which yeah like, i think that's like again an old way to start a craft brewery like you think that's what i was gonna say yeah, it's a very think, like old-fashioned mindset yeah i don't think know? alan sprints ever thought and hair the dog thought he's like well what you know in two years we'll be at five thousand and six years we'll be at fifteen thousand and the guy's still making like a couple hundred barrels of beer a year because he likes doing it and like I love doing this, so mm -hmm. just figure out a way to not end up in the place where it's like, well, you guys got to make a hazy too. It's like maybe we will, but it won't be because we like have to like sell the beer to. We're going to structure it in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think if your intention and your mindset is as you're saying it is, you're never going to get to that point because there's no pressure on you to feel like you need to do anything more, right? Sure. Like coming from a financial standpoint, I guess. Yeah, and it's being upfront and honest with yourself and then the people you approach because some people, are, I'm going to have to ask people for money or I'm going to get take on debt in some way. Mm -hmm. But being upfront with those people and like, listen, we're what the brewery we are not is this and probably saying no to some people who wanted to give us money thinking it was something it wasn't mm -hmm. is something we're going to have to think about and do. Um, in order to live the truest version of what is what is, is mm -hmm. and should be and will right. be will be and will be yeah I mm -hmm. think that's like the true sign of a obviously good intention but success too you know it, the, your passion behind it isn't for financial gain it's just fulfillment and feeling good with what you're doing and 
those are the most successful restaurants you see in any business, really. It's not the people who are like, I want to make a million dollars or a billion or a hundred billion. Yeah. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I mean, some of those are very successful businesses mm-hmm. and some of those are very successful restaurants too, but uh, they don't, in, they, they're not interesting. I, I couldn't work for one of those. I, uh, I would become incredibly bored and not motivated. And when I'm not really engaged with the, the ethos behind something, I can get very distracted and very unmotivated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine what a life would be like where I am in char- technically in charge of something that I don't care about anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that's why in those examples of restaurants and businesses where there isn't a, a firm figurehead at the top who's passionate about it, you see a lot of turnover in upper management and even down to the employees, too, because yeah. if if there's no leadership from the top, if there's no passion, then how does anyone get involved and feel good about it whether you're paying them a lot or not it doesn't matter right if there's no passion in what you're doing then why are you doing it yeah and there's plenty of places i'm I'm sure we know a lot of them that start out very passionate and believing in what they're doing and then it morphs over time Mm -hmm. into something where it's like someone leaves or like the ethos behind it was never really true or like all these things happen where it's like that's no longer what that seemed like at the beginning it's a successful financial entity but it's like a zombie version of what mm-hmm. it was at the beginning and it's sad yeah. and uh yeah like I, I would rather have a small fledgling company for a long time than one day wake up and be like what is this brewery that i made mm-hmm. so and the part of that is like i like operating it i like doing the stuff some people just want to you know do that for a while and cash so, out or, yeah. or or think that a lot of, I think a lot of people opened breweries thinking it was a retirement plan too. And it's like, no, you're going to work at least as hard as you worked at AT&T, man. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a lot more expensive <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a lot more expensive <laughs> and you're going to pay it a lot less. Like, and you're mm-hmm. not going to have benefits and like, it's going to be like a, not that those are good things, but, uh, yeah, it's, it goes along with that. Like the idea of the dream jobs, like this is, there, there are realities that come along with when it's something that a lot of people want to do. Most of the people that do it, you know, don't get, rewarded very much financially like like music right like everyone wants to be a musician most people don't get rewarded for it. like baseball players like you, every every kid at some point in their life thinks they want to play professional baseball for the most part and then 90 percent of those dudes even if you make the major like the the major league system and you're in the minor leagues you get paid literally like uh, an apprentice they're right. literally categorized as apprentices and so like m- Anything that people really want to do or seems like a good job, you're going to have to either be like exceptionally good at it or really, really love it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you're both. But Right. Uh, Hopefully. I, I, if you have to choose one of the two, I'd rather really, really love it. Right. <laughs> you can, you yeah. can learn. Yeah. You, but you, but you, uh, learn. Right. you have to be passionate to learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of it, too, especially when you think of musicians and sports athletes, there's a lot of luck involved, too. Totally. And I, I'll even throw that to breweries and, and restaurants, too. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of the luck in that situation comes down to place and time. Yeah, 100%. Um, but, yeah, it's just how you, you're never going to know. You can do everything right, but you're never going to know how people perceive your product, right? You cannot control you, that. You can't control that. Yeah. And so that that is where the, the stroke of luck does come in. Right. And, Yeah. You have to do something that you really resonate with and work really hard to find people it really resonates with to do something honest. 
Like mm-hmm. you, you cannot control people like coming to your, the thing that you you're doing. You have to like, if you're gonna be happy doing like, creating something, you have to be really into the thing you are creating first, mm-hmm. um, and then. I'm part of it. I mean, this is like technically marketing, but it's like how clearly can you tell the story of why you're into this and how, what is your ability to find other people who are into that? Mm-hmm. Um, like that's something we're trying to figure out right now. It's like, how do we like, I, I'm sure there's people out there who would love what we're doing and we just need to find them. Um, so like, yeah, what, what is there content we can make that would do that? Is it just doing events like, which we couldn't do for the last like six months. So um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting create a different set of things to focus on and just like instead of just making the core beers that everyone makes now and that people know they like those so they buy them for that reason but then you don't really have an identity mm-hmm. no, it's a different it's a different set of problems that I'm very happy to be dealing with ungoogleable problems mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that um, the timing that you've come in because this company, you've been making beers now for, is it one and a half years, two years? As it was, yeah, since like May of, of 2019 was when we first started. Okay. End of May. So you're looking at predominantly staying in Chicago yep. pretty at this point, and you're actually bringing beer directly to people, not just selling to the stores, which is what yeah. most breweries depend on is either selling themselves that if they happen to be in Illinois or through a distributor selling to bars and retailers, but uh, you've been able to sell directly to customers as well as to retailers, right? Yeah, they changed the law at the beginning of quarantine that we can now, so we, we don't have a tap room obviously because we brew out of another brewery. So to be able to sell directly to people, they changed, the, not for us, but they changed a lot of being of quarantine that breweries could deliver directly to individuals, which wasn't the case before. So part of our, what we've pivoted to, I suppose, is that like we, we will deliver directly to your house um, once, well, it's like once a month. We only have one release a month. Actually, we'll do it any time you actually email me. I'll, I'll pretty <laughs> much come out on a Friday and bring you some beer. But uh, yeah, in the city of Chicago, we deliver right, right to people's houses, which has been not a huge amount of volume, but because of the difference in um, even just between us selling it to a liquor store and them marking it up to sell to a consumer, it's been a, a significant chunk of our uh, revenue. Mm-hmm. which has been great. Um, yeah, I think in uh, in a lot of the material I read about in non-alcoholic, every all the new companies are talking about need to be direct consumer, direct consumer. Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's funny to, to think about those and the products that they're selling, like some stupid snack food made with some shit that... <laughs> Like it's shitty razors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you're a big. Like, yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Shave club. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have someone making uh, rustic ales in Chicago. <laughs> right, that's right. also, also a part. Of we're, we're direct consumer. <laughs> right. But part. I mean, I kind of love it because it's like yeah. we're literally finding the people who are the most engaged with what we're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how. Like it's not like we don't have a cool app. Like we don't have a very quick delivery turnaround time. And like literally, it's. Place an order by Thursday, and I'll come to your house Friday sometime. I'm like worse than Cablevision or whatever, the, <laughs> or Comcast. Uh, I, I you can select like a preferred window, but if I don't get, if I have to do something at the brewery, it's like it's just me. So I'm gonna get there at 4 p.m. Uh, but with, you still with, show up with, the same with, day with warm beer, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like these people have to be really into whatever we're doing, or or something that the brand is, or the beers themselves, which is. Uh, I don't know how we would have 
found those people and really known who they are without being able to do that. Um, those people are awesome. Like, they're mm -hmm. the coolest people. Like some of those, like a lot of those people give me beer, which I'm not sure what how legal that is, but uh, like <laughs> I'll go to their house. Someone gave me some side project, or one of the people that works most regularly works at Metro, and like it's like you know it's not a huge number of people, but it's awesome that like we're connecting on this level that you wouldn't normally think a business would connect with individuals on. Mm -hmm. um, which is, super cool and, right? and, and very fulfilling yeah and yeah. certainly for a business that normally in your industry you have to go through a tier system so you're forced out of a connection right. with a consumer yeah yeah uh unless you do an event or something like that in which case you're deprived of the direct sale in any event too right so i think that's that's kind of the cool marketing aspect that you have is that you can actually build a connection with people that isn't even just like the transaction over the internet and then caviar takes it to them or right. whatever, but right. you're actually building a connection with someone in uh, a way that is as organic as the beer that you're making too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, and uh, most of the, uh, more often than not, it's like completely contactless as in so far as I like, I look at their ID through a glass window or something. <laughs> But some of the people I like, chat with for a couple of minutes, and like I get to know them, like I know things about them, I know things they like, like like it's it's yeah. off, it's it's uh, like the opposite of like the distance and like the the I don't know it's it's like Marxian and being connected to like the thing you're making and even the people consuming it and like it's it's really it's great it's awesome if I could run a brewery like that and just deliver people's houses that might be just as good as having a tap room or anything like that. It'd be mm -hmm. really exciting for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. If only gasoline were free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I got diesel, so uh, I one of those diesel Volkswagens, so that's like real cheap in Bridgeport. Where <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, you know, in a time where you we're not really allowed to see each other, you're still allowed to... Actually, laws were loosened so that you could have a more personal interaction with the consumer and yeah i think i'm in like a unique position where that was like my only way to really connect with people most people have their own tap room like most mm -hmm. people in chicago now at this point have like have a tap room that, that people can come in or could have come in um so we're probably one of the few that gets to get closer to the consumer through that mm -hmm. uh but it's it's pretty great um yeah <laughs> i don't know that's <laughs> <laughs> i don't uh coming back to the beers that we've been consuming. Um, yeah. I wish I tasted more green bottle than I actually do. Yeah, I don't, I don't get very much at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we've, they've been inside of a box away from light, so it's probably not that different. Mm. Um, we'll have you back and, uh, we'll really mistreat yeah. one of the beers. Yeah. And it's <laughs> awesome. Like that's kind of fun, right? To beat something up like that. Something that I, I think is so delicate and special and kind of, kick the shit out of it and then be like, this is actually pretty great too. Mm -hmm. um, we did another beer in green bottles that was inspired by Alberon, which is like a, a French brewery, just like right over the Belgian border and all their stuff's in green bottles. And like by the time it comes to America, it's a very defining characteristic is that it has this kind of skunky like cellar character, which is really more often skunky than it is actually having been cellared in any way. Mm -hmm. um, so like we, I was like, well, we did most of it in the, the brown glass because that's like technically better for the beer, but some of it in the green bottle for the nerds that were like, I want to try both. And okay, for me, I wanted to try both. I wanted to see what the difference really was. And I, and I love the green bottle version of it. I don't think we'll do it too much of it, but it was really, really cool. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they are. They, it's this one probably won't be as different because the aged hops won't skunk in the same way. Mm-hmm. But there is some. Uh, there are some flame out hops in this, so something will will happen to it, or just like maybe it's not always the hop compounds. It's what we've been told. Corona told us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that uh, the age hop profile does come through in a in a pleasant way in this beer, though. Um, and there's something that it's not like it's not lambic flavor, it's not lambic aroma, but there's something that is like just a little wink. Yeah, yeah. When mm-hmm. you drink this beer, that reminds me of. Uh, beers of that persuasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it wasn't intended to be like lambic. It was just meant to be like here are the some things that are hallmarks of that. It, it recontextualized again to like put it in like in a fresh beer context, and um, I thought I find it really really interesting and and pretty fun to drink mm-hmm. and delicious in its own right. For those like feet can be delicious. Like we all like most people. A lot of people love stinky cheese. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that footy hop thing is pretty fun. Yeah, I think uh, when we were able to get Blagy back in uh, in Chicago again, when uh, when Shelton Brothers uh, came back, uh, <laughs> most the most recent time, uh, I remember uh, opening up a bottle for uh, the staff at a restaurant I was working for, and the facial expressions <laughs> towards the uh, characteristics of both never, most of them for never, and maybe this is a shame on my educating them, but like <laughs> no, not no. Not, uh, not having tasted spelt in a beer uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and also not having tasted uh, aged hops or like a- outside of a lambic, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, was uh, It was pretty hilarious. What were the reactions <laughs> to spelt? I find that interesting so i think uh like there was always like the stinky cheese um and like the tennis ball thing was what people were talking about a lot yeah um but then a couple people told me that there was something like uh there was a different kind of grain character that reminded them of like something they would eat with breakfast or something like that and i was like Mm -hmm. that's spelt believe it or not there's things that people use that aren't just Barley or wheat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and it's like, this is... Which I thought was actually, like, a pretty uh, astute observation. Yeah, and it, it is different. Like, it, it is a form of... It's like a precursor to wheat, right? Spelt. Mm-hmm. But it is, to my palate, significantly different than wheat. Uh, wheat is almost not there most of the time. It's like, it's defining characteristic is that it's light and kind of absent. Uh, but spelt is there in like very full force for me. It's, even in this beer, like it's not a high percent necessarily a high percentage of spelt, but uh, it's definitely there for me. Like almondy and nutty and and delicious. And um, we've used malted and unmalted spelt, and they're completely different characters. Uh, and that's kind of fun to figure out. Like this is much more grain mm-hmm. uh, than the malted version. It's much just more like the aromatics and like the kind of nutty thing. But this is like starchy and. I don't know, that might be psychosomatic because I've worked really hard to, to get it in there. But uh, I think it's really, it's interesting to experience it in beer. I, I don't know a lot of other uh, breweries using it too much. Mm-hmm. It also can be expensive. Yeah, it's definitely something you don't see. And I think that um, it's one of those things where the malt character of a beer doesn't 
really define the signature. If you if if brews even buy into signature profiles anymore, like sure. a lot of that is typically defined by some other kind of either a sensibility or uh, the older American brewers, much like Belgian brewers would argue, there's something in our house yeast that makes this beer that is otherwise on paper exactly the same as 50 other beers sure. taste very different, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, do you, do you buy that argument in a certain way? It's something that we in, in America and in Belgium, I think they've, they've like internalized this quite a bit is that there's house yeast. That's the guarded secret, right? Of so many of these breweries. But if you look at like, take the family brewers, for example, like those beers are all the same beer. Right. Uh, I, so it, it, it isn't right. It can't be like these things are, you can, they're knowable. We can get the yeast out of there and other people can have it. It then becomes more hand of the maker of the decision-making process that becomes your house character. You might, it might express itself through the character the yeast gives when you've made choices about it, but it's not actually the genetics or the bio bio, bio biological characteristics of that yeast necessarily. But you give the same person the same ingredients, they're all going to make different beers. Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, our yeast is from Blaugy. Like, that's where the, the source supposedly is. Our beers taste different than theirs. Um, it also, like, the, the yeast itself will change over time. Um, yeah, I think there's, I think that, that house characters, and I've long thought this about beer, that house character is not about your yeast or your well water or whatever. It's much more about the decisions you make and the things you believe in about how you construct and execute beers as we were talking about before it's one of the most highly manipulated alcoholic beverages mm -hmm. so when you can can make a lot of interventions when you choose to or when you don't or how you choose to combine those things is can be as important as the ingredients mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think. yeah yeah no i think that's that's definitely the the counter argument to house yeast and things that are like those are easier narratives for people to to take right and it's an easier marketing pitch as well mm -hmm. yeah we're not going to tell you we're not going to tell we'll tell you all the ingredients in two hearted right right but right. you're not going to make it but that's not because of the well, house that could also be ingredients right it's not the house yeast there but like if you're a, your bells you get first selection of all the ingredients you make you choose mm -hmm. and you're probably more knowledgeable about them but then again that's not necessarily the ingredient i think that's the individual or the people and the choices they make mm -hmm. they select a certain kind of centennial and then that creates the flavor profile of uh of two-hearted mm -hmm. right so is it actually that the that they have different hops or is that they they literally chose different hops mm -hmm. so that's a choice that's a person doing mm -hmm. that right or the way that the temperature they ferment their beer at or like their pitching counts their, their yeast cell counts like all those things are choices people make um anyone can can almost anyone can access those ingredients right mm -hmm. but the ones that you can't access those were because of people's choices so further up the stream than it being the ingredient it's the person's point of view of what is good what is bad and why we should make this beer mm -hmm. even even at two hearted yeah no i mean and it's also and the equipment that they're making it on is very different from any other brewery yeah yeah <laughs> I've never actually seen it, but I've heard very cool like stories about just the interesting setup and how there's always new stuff and there's like processes that, that no one else can do. I also think process is a very underrated 
uh, aspect of brewing and like the choices you make, the choices you don't, the things mm-hmm. you do on the brew day, the, the way your equipment kind of hamstrings you or allows you to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, like the best brewers, you take all of that into consideration when constructing the beer in the first place and then execute around it more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I would, I would agree fully. I mean, as you were saying, and as you have been saying, <laughs> it, it is highly manipulative. And, you know, even just, you know, the temperature you strike the grain in at can make all the difference. And it does sure. make all the difference, right? you know? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all, it, there's things that aren't, uh, they aren't attractive to talk about. Uh, or sexy to talk about. It's not marketing material. Right, it's not marketing material, but it is the most important difference. Like, if you talk to like a lot of brewers, uh, they're gonna talk about water profiles at like probably more than anything else, right? They're gonna talk about how they manipulate their water profiles, but how do you... <laughs> nice! <laughs> you, got, uh... <laughs> you know, you actually did good. You got, you got the table. Yeah, and you that's really all you got. You missed everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do they call this waterfowl? Uh, wa- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Water you feed you you feature waterfowl on your. Uh, <laughs> that's right. We have many wa- many waterfowl. All right, all right. Here you want to try that again, or what? You want you wanted to have a round two? Yeah, maybe on I'll that? maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll watch this time. <laughs> Highly advisable. There you go. Cool. Dude, you nailed that pour. Yeah, that was better. <laughs> Anyways. First time's the charm. Nailed it. Good <laughs> uh, yeah, as new. Brewers geek out on like water profiles, not on like how many. Well, uh, I, there's definitely brewers who geek on like on hot profiles and aromas mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But a lot of people that make beer are more into like the minutia of how is this water profile going to affect the way this beer feels in my mouth, mm-hmm. and or how is it going to affect the way that these hops are presented grams of that type of stuff can change all of those characteristics and you have producers like this guy who only want to use full bags of everything right well <laughs> full full bags is, everyone loves full bags you know it's easier for inventory mm-hmm. but uh yeah i have thought a lot about like how has the fact that some stuff comes in 55 pound bags some stuff comes in 50 pound bags affected what we think is standard beers, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like we're nothing but inherent. Like everything that we did at Pipeworks at a certain point was full bag increments. It's like, oh, is it twenty two? Uh, it's twenty one point nine percent. Who cares? Uh, and like, I think that's the case for most breweries where you just do things in full unit increments, meaning like eleven pound bags of hops or twenty two pound bags of hops. Like, it just it's cleaner and it usually makes at least for dry hop it makes for better product too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how those things are driven where you're like, oh, we're actually not at three pounds per barrel. We're at 3.3 pounds per barrel, but we're not going to go to three, even though that like might be the thing in my head. I don't, that's a- so maybe that's the artistic choice of the uh, manufacturers right. for a yeah. supply mm-hmm. group. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so we have Dorothy from Hill Farmstead in a label that... I don't know if they even make beers with these labels anymore. Oh, yeah. I don't think they've changed anything. (laughs) Okay. Um, We have a New Zealand hopped uh, dry hop saison from 2014. Yeah. How how old is this? 
2014. This, 2014. Yep. This was uh, aged in the back of a uh, of a cooler at, at a <laughs> bar in Chicago <laughs> called Local Option. I mean, it's it smells old. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's crazy because I drank uh, a Dorothy that was a similar age, and um, that almost had no age flavor on it whatsoever. Really? Yeah, which I was kind of, uh, I was surprised by. Was it the same color as this one? This seems a little bit darker than a lot of other Saisons. It wasn't as dark as this beer, which yeah. some people say that uh, beers change, the color changes over time as well, right? It can, yeah. Mm -hmm. It can get ox oxidation, causes darkening. Mm -hmm. uh, and other other things cause dark mm -hmm. too. But uh, this is it's still really fun to drink. It's mm -hmm. much more uh, old overall like than I was expecting a dry hopped New Zealand saison to taste like. Mm -hmm. But that's like when you make a really great beer, it just evolves into something that is also delicious. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't go wrong, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember double crooked tree? Like no, it just becomes a barley wine. It's like it does. Yeah, it becomes really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that being a huge, uh, huge talking point on beer advocate forums. Was oh now it's a, I want a, I wanted a barley. I'll just wait for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a, a different type of beer consumer as like the the one that everyone thought of as the beer consumer, right? One that's like. Oh, this thing is old and oxidized, and I love it. Mm -hmm. Like that is not a thing anymore. I feel like for the majority of untapped ratings or the, the bulk of beer consumer, right? Yeah, and I don't think that that the audience that still enjoys those things. I don't really know if there's new people that are getting into it. Yeah, I think it's just a slow, a, sl a slow like slimming of that you, of that group. Do you think that was something out of necessity, like back then, where like they, those people didn't really like those things that they had had other options? It was just like they had limited ways to interact with beer. So one of them was, let's see how old it gets and what happens to it, and that it wasn't really that good. <laughs> that's like, I don't know. I, I, that's, I think about that type of thing all the time. It's like, were the things we liked back then actually good, or did we have lower expectations, or did we have limited ways to interact with the things that are now like infinite? Options I think it's the a combination of the latter two that you were saying. I think that in one way, we were treating beer in a way closer to what people would treat wine as. And that is like, you can age it, it's okay. We saw people aging beer and it was like, okay, and actually an interesting thing to do. It was reinforced by like the online beer culture at that yeah. time as well. Producers were saying it was okay to do. Vintages were things that they were like releasing for events and things like that. So it was something like, was it better that, or what, like, was it as great as we know it could be? Or like our senses of that change over time too, right? Sure. And our palates change. And so we also, learn more over time too. And so I think that the the joy of drinking like a four-year-old angel share, for example, yeah, like yeah. I still get the same joy yeah. of drinking that beer. And I think the thing that I enjoyed the most of the, of I'm taking it out of the pejorative and into my own experience here, but like the thing that I enjoyed the most was observing how close it would stay to the original. Sure. Um, and watching like how certain characteristics that I didn't like, namely like alcohol heat would go away, but the integral aspects of it 
would stay. That to me was the game of aging was seeing how long it would take for that to happen before the beer, like the flavor profile deconstructed and it became something different. But there was a group of people that um, like is still out there that enjoy that point and beyond more. And they enjoy when those beers come apart and you see true colors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think that was a group of people that were more like literally open in like the psychological like evaluation sense. They're more open to experience. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that this now tastes like soy sauce, uh, you didn't like hate the beer for it. It was like, no, this is a new experience I'm having where because you can now go and have a fresh high ABV stout literally anytime you want, you don't get to like sit there and be like, oh, well, that's not as good as that. Like then you were like, I wanted to see how this aged. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Not that like I want to have a peak experience every time, which I think is the goal for a lot of people now. Where it's like I want to have the juiciest, I want to have the sweetest or the mapleiest, and that's a just a different goal. It's a different like way to go into drinking, which isn't wrong in any way. It's just a completely different mindset mm-hmm. and hard to treat similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's I agree. Cool. Like in the same way as well. Like. I think we were accepting scarcity at a certain point too. Sure. And there just wasn't those, op- there weren't those opportunities to uh, have a double crooked tree or something like it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. That still isn't true today, I guess, but I there would be some. I bet it's harder to have an old but, double crooked tree now than it's ever been. <laughs> right. Or, I mean, even like the that style of, Really, really bold, malty, hoppy, right? Uh, double I proper double IPA. Like, we're not really seeing that anymore either, right? Um, beer in a way has kind of evolved as the marketing needs have evolved, and so that becomes like the breweries that want to grow and like getting back to like the breweries that want to grow and that need to pay people off need to move shit out quickly. So they need to build a narrative around selling the beer quickly. And that's where get it fresh, buy it the day of look at package dates. Like that's the, not the only reason why you would do that, but that's part of where a lot of that comes from. I think I listened to your episode with Chris Quinn and it was really interesting about like, how he was so adamant about freshness states and now he's like pulling back on mm-hmm. it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, not pulling back, but like he's, he's now that he created a monster, but like it's become a monster, right? Where mm-hmm. if you drink a beer that's more than two weeks old, it's garbage or like it's it, th- that idea. And it's just super interesting because it, it was true to a certain extent. And in, in a very classic, like American way, if a little bit of it's true, a lot of it must also be true, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if it's if it's <laughs> if I need to drink within two weeks, it's got to be best right out of the, the Zwickel, right? That mm-hmm. has to be the best version of that. I can't tell you how many beers I've had where, like, fresh out of the tank, it's like, okay, that's fine. And then, like, two days later, it's like, oh, that's actually mellowed out or great or whatever. But uh, mm-hmm. the idea that freshness is important uh, without caveat mm-hmm. has just gone off the rails, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and to the point where it's gone so far around the horseshoe that there are breweries that now are like, you have to keep this cold, not because it's better for the quality of the beer, because this thing will explode mm-hmm. if you don't drink it fast <laughs> and keep it cold. It's like, that's not, like, I, I feel like an old man now saying like, that's not a packaged product. 
Right. That's not mm-hmm. something you should be putting into a package to sell to people. Mm-hmm. Like you failed as a commercial entity, as a brewery, doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where you're selling something that's dangerous to people. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's dangerous or, or has such a short shelf life. Like that's taproom stuff. Mm-hmm. That's right. not something you're supposed to be putting in a can. Like to, and then, <laughs> and then uh, I never would have thought the move of, no, you idiot, you're supposed to keep it cold and drink it real fast, ever would have worked. I would have assumed consumer revolt would have been like, well, fuck you, man. Like, right. <laughs> I bought a canned beer. I can't have it for a week. Like, like I don't know. Uh, Especially with a medium like canning where that's actually a great way to preserve shelf life in a, in a non-packaged condition context is right. in cans. If you're doing it, right? I think that's yeah. also part of Chris's argument, right? Mm-hmm. That, like some technologies are better than others. So like Firestone Walker beer at, at two months is better than a lot of beer at two weeks. Exactly. So, like the, the, there's no hard and fast date or rule for that. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that are still just like feel wrong. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, no, I, I, I'm glad you brought this up because it's something that you see so much in beer playing on the urgency culture and Mm -hmm. on this like uh on the the marketing uh i think a lot of it's marketing it's totally marketing, and it's something that i don't like about beer because most of the time you can wait a little bit and the beer will taste better Unless it's a, an exploding can situation, in which case, you know, there's other things going on that are problematic. But yeah, most of the time a beer will taste better with uh, some time on it. Breweries like Half Acre will intentionally hold product back to ensure that it tastes right when it's released. And your Belgian guys would say the same, too. They're not going to release something until it's right to drink. Yeah. I mean, we're so with our bottle finishing process, things are carbonated in like a week or two weeks, um, but they're not, they don't taste right, right? They're at mm-hmm. the level of carbonation we want. They are, the numbers are all correct, but there's something that's not finished with them. Maybe there's a little bit of diacetyl or there's something that's not cleaned up, to, at least to my palate. Mm-hmm. So these things take about two months until they're actually ready. And that's like, you know, that time is money, right? I guess. But uh, the beer isn't the beer until it's ready. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But is the beer... Okay, so let's take this argument in a different way. So does the beer continue to be the beer if it (laughs) is only the beer for a short period of time? Oh, man. There's so many ways to answer that. Uh, Answer it however you'd like. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Oh, man. The beer is the beer as far as it is labeled, I suppose, right? If it says it's this beer, then it is that beer. Uh, Your experience with it can change. Um, and your qualitative analysis of that experience can be better or worse. Um, so yes, the beer is the beer, I suppose, but uh, your experience, which is, is the important part, will be better or worse, depending on when you drink that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, it has to taste a certain way for at least a certain amount of time. Yeah, right. yeah. For it to be anything, for right? it to be something, right? Whether it's that thing or that thing version one, or like, yeah. or that's in some order sort to be a thing line through it, exactly right? mm-hmm. to, to connect these things and call them the same thing. There has to be something that I, I suppose ends up being intangible, even if it's a physical characteristic of the beer. It's something you. 
experience, which your experiences are intangible, right? So it's your experience with this thing as this and as the same thing at a different time. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it the same thing. Uh, I would, I think it does. I think a lot of, I think there is also uh, a prevailing argument out there that if we just put the same label on it, it's the same thing (laughs) because you can't see, you can't see what's on the inside. Well, there's Mm -hmm. funny versions of that. Like the Phantom, like I think it just puts whatever label is on the top on beers. And then there's like a version of it where like beers slight, even like IPAs slightly evolve over time from batch to batch. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they, and sometimes that's to make them better. And sometimes that's to make them cheaper. And sometimes it's because the brewers changed. And sometimes it's because someone had to leave early that day and they just wanted to get through it faster. Like there's infinite reasons why these things change. Uh, but you have to, as a producer, you have to do your best job to make it connected to the last thing you did that was called that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does Phantom Saison continue to be Phantom Saison? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> I don't know. I think because like Danny, once you embrace that it's going to be that and you revel in it, that it's going to be different, that becomes part of that experience, right? Mm -hmm. That part of your experience was a thing is that it isn't going to be the same necessarily. Uh, And you embrace it for that potential variation. But that's like a unicorn of a brewery. No other brewery does or should get away with that. Right. But he makes so little beer and it's so good when it's good that like you get to get away with these things. And like the um there should be a small set of all creators that are like enigmas and weirdos. Mm-hmm. Uh and he gets to be that. Like it's awesome. But the whole thing would fall apart if every brewery tried to be the enigma and the weirdo. Where it's like, well it's different every time we make it. Like it's just not how you make something that event that is a product you know like if you call it the same thing it has to have some sort of characteristic that's similar he gets away with it part of that being that it's not similar it's like this weird uh i don't know ouroboros (laughs) yeah i mean he he is him do you think uh early american uh early third wave american craft breweries a la 2009 to 2011 got away with the same thing uh, maybe without the maybe without the stature that he carries because of sure, sure. what he's done and the audi and what we as an audience of his no. sees, but yeah, yeah. as far as just when you look at the pure variation that may have existed because of lack of know how, lack of protocol, uh, well, trying things too. Sure, it was, it was very alive and it was very easy for American breweries back then to be like, we're trying to figure out what the next best thing to do is. And, or like we have these very real restraints, but uh, we're one of the few commercial entities that you can buy beer from. Like that's like, so we we couldn't get the hops we wanted, but it's pretty close. Like that's Mm -hmm. actually a thing I think happens more often or used to happen more often than not. Now it's probably not happening as hops are much more available. But like, yeah, that idea that. uh, You're producing beer towards an idea. The label is the idea instead of an exact recipe, right? Mm -hmm. 100%. I think that that's good for beer. Um, I think that's especially good for small producers. And when it's honest, it's great. Uh, I think if it's not just to cover up the fact that you don't know what you're doing, uh, which can be the case sometimes, uh, but if it is really like we're trying to like, we have a, a, a platonic ideal of this in our heads and we're striving for it. And hopefully we move towards it most of the time. Uh, every once in a while that inherently you'll move away from it. So mm-hmm. uh, that's like... We have this beer called Will Be. The first time we did it, it wasn't open top fermented. The second time it was. The third time it was open top fermented, then we closed it at a certain point. 
we were experimenting with how to get to the perfect place for that beer. But sometimes it's going to be slightly a step, not a step back, but a step aside for what that, what the perfect place for that is. And then when you mm-hmm. get it there, then hopefully you can recreate that all the time. Like, I, hopefully the producer of that actually does have a vision for what that is and will ref, and is refining rather than just sprawling, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. refining and figuring out how what's the how is this the abstract idea of what will be his? How can we most perfectly take that from the beauty of the idea of it in our head and then have to put it in a tangible form and have it be as close to that idea as possible. You have a bottle of will be with you, don't you? I have two of them. Let's yeah. try one. All right. <laughs> so what the, someone that comes to, when you're talking, just what you were uh, saying, the person that comes to mind the most when we're talking about something that, there's someone that believes that this thing tastes a certain way and they are, and they are the assurance that that's going to be that way is uh, uh, Ron Jeffries from Jolly Pumpkin. Yeah. Uh, because here he is in probably one of the largest like craft brewery barrel. Thank you. He has a lot of beer on wood and probably like among the most in the, in the U S uh-huh. and He's really like the the chartreuse monk in a way. Yeah. He knows everything. He knows what uh, is. <laughs> he knows what goes into those beers. He knows what the blends are. He knows the characteristics of all those barrels. Mm-hmm. Like he is that brewery. Right. That that brewery wouldn't be able to make Bam beer or Bam Noir, or I don't know if they make Bam Noir, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, or de Calabaza, for example, they could make those, but um, either I've believed the biggest marketing piece of all time, or <laughs> he is in, uh, inextricably linked to all of that because of his understanding of both the barrels and the end, what the end result is to be, right? And that's partly his vision too, you know? Mm-hmm. And if he hasn't explicitly shared that vision with any of his other staff, then... How do you translate that without him? He's probably shared sure. the vision, but he can't put his palate in. I can't put yeah, my yeah, mouth yeah. into your mouth. <laughs> That's why it's super like to get like technical with that. It's super important. So I, he's notorious for doing that alone and never talking to anyone about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he actually lives in Hawaii now. So someone there knows what he's like. <laughs> but uh, but that's it's super important to do those things with other people and talk about them because the language of those things is so personal and so specific to one's palate that I could say, uh, you know, Laffy Taffy and you could say banana runs and we could be talking about the same exact compound or the same exact dose, like amount of it. But if I don't know what you're talking about, you don't know what I'm talking about. There's no way for me to ever like export the idea of what this beer is supposed to taste like to you unless I understand your like tasting language, Mm -hmm. which is a varies i've never said that tasting language before it sounds very stupid out loud no but that's what it is is you understand (laughs) how that's how we understand each other as far as being able to identify exactly what's in that glass yeah and minimizing Mm -hmm. the so in 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 the audio world right there's signal loss every time you make a connection to something right there's probably Mm -hmm. like it's it's degraded every time you want right is that is that right yeah, no, that's, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. you don't have a mic. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I just wanted, you're in the room, I wanted to talk to you. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, but 
so like the idea, every time you take something from, uh, I tasted this and it, it felt some sort of way, I tried to turn it into language in my brain and then I said it to you, you internalize that language and then you try to turn it back into the feeling that I had when I was talking about what it tasted like, right? There's so many connection points there that's going to get degraded every point of the way. So mm-hmm. uh, I think the metaphor breaks down here, but the more we do that, and the more seamless it can be when you know you taste the same thing at the same time as me, you know what it feels like in your head, and I know what it feels like in my head. Uh, and then the words are just the, are the speed bump then, where we can both develop a, a, a vernacular for the way we talk about our beers specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've started, like when we start tasting barrels, it's, it's the, all three of us taste them all at the same time if we're gonna talk about them. Me, my, Dylan, my partner, and then Ryan, the guy who, help, who helps us brew and do everything, and it's become like the third is was person. So that we can start developing that type of language. And every brew day and every packaging day ends with us sitting down and drinking beers uh, and often talking about how they taste and sometimes talking about other stuff, but to develop that vernacular, at least between the three of us, so that what then when it gets beyond the three of us, if it ever does, Ryan or Dylan can articulate like the things that we've talked about and we all know to other people. And hopefully through that, you can like spread this idea of what your... I don't know, ideal blend or your like the, the, the mission statement insofar as the taste of the beer is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way to do it is to do it with individuals one-on-one and, or within a group of people that all, everyone's on the same page. Right. Or else it dies with you. Yeah. And then it's pretty badass. Like I would take it. Yeah. That, that is kind of badass. <laughs> but I'd rather have <laughs> other people understand it and be able to like appreciate it in the way that I do. Well, that's the point of beverage sharing it. Right. Yeah. You know, and like, this is the same, what's in my glass is, is the same as what's in your glass. So we're all, at some point, we're all experiencing the same thing, right? We're mm-hmm. experiencing mm-hmm. exactly the same thing. How we're internalizing it's very different, but it's a cool thing to like, we're actually, we know we're experiencing the same like physical, like physical input. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I get, I get very heady about like, No, I, I, get, I get super sentimental, sorry, yeah. with like that, that concept with all beverage, all food. That's why I like, I really treasure every meal and just cooking and even going out. Like that's an experience where we're all having the same kind of, you know, food and dining kind of experience. Um, but we're all internalizing it in a different way, but it's a community thing at the same time. And so it builds a camaraderie, even if it's unknowns to everyone there you know yeah and you're physically internalizing it Mm -hmm. like it's the only like the only thing people create that you literally put inside of you and becomes part of you physically Mm -hmm. you can look at a painting and feel things and have like that's a similar experience like that but you're not eating literally consuming the painting it's not going inside (laughs) of your body and becoming cellular components of your being Mm-hmm. Which is like that's why food and beverage is the coolest. Like I, mm-hmm. right? You, you, it can be very uh, esoteric to talk about it like that, but it is true and it is really cool. <laughs> and it, it's temporary. Yeah, that's right. the coolest thing. Yeah, it, it will never happen again that way. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's the coolest thing because it just to me it furthers the point that life is fleeting and you need to just enjoy every single moment of it. Right. Yeah. That's and. I think food and beverage are like the most perfect example of something we all do that we can all relate to and we can all enjoy in that way. Yeah. I mean, that's part of where our name comes from is the idea that like this is momentary and every moment you come back to this beer, like any of these beers, it is this, it was this, and then this one will be, and it will be something else in the future. But like it's 
the idea of that brand. Like this is the same beer, slightly changed over time, but your interaction with it's gonna change every time, but it's the same. And what makes it the same? Well, some sort of through line that we all have kind of experienced together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, I, I wish we had more time, but we, we actually are running low on time here. Um, but this has been good. Do you have any closing remarks? No, I mean, I think that, uh, this project is, uh, very special. And I think Mm -hmm. that these styles of beer, uh, are like, they're near and dear to me personally, because like Mike, (laughs) and not Michael Jordan. (laughs) Um, Who knows? He could probably love them too. He's got to get them in front of him. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Put them in the steakhouse. Um, You know, to me, these were very like, I mean, like big beers from Stroisa were formative for me, but uh, they also come from this world, a different part of this world, but they are from this same world as well. I think that was the beer I brought for uh when we brought our formative beers with Chris Quinn was uh from Stroisa who's also a Belgian producer not necessarily a farmhouse producer or a producer of rustic beers but his mindset uh is um in the same world here yeah. even though he he doesn't really believe in subtlety in the same way but there's a ton of subtlety <laughs> in not his beers has to like that mm-hmm. exactly it's his his view but exactly um but I think this project is very important. Uh, I think that the future of a sustainable beer world relies on uh, companies like this that are able to connect people to beverage in a certain way and also that show um, that certain profiles are very important. And this is uh, linked always with the with the branding and um yeah just fucking drink it like if (laughs) you if you like beers that are golden drink this Mm -hmm. because that's really like this is where things should go in my mind yeah personally this is the next step yeah i think yeah i i I think so too i hope so and it it, it certainly is for me and for anyone else who wants to come this way it doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be for everyone but Mm -hmm. give it a shot yeah you'll like it think so too cool cool well thank you so much for joining us mike thanks for having me it's been a pleasure thank you it's wonderful Mm -hmm.